You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15. If you've been with us over the past couple of weeks, you know that um, we've been camped out uh, at the Red Sea, uh, anticipating the crossing of the Red Sea by the children of Israel. And uh, in the midst of all of that, kind of seeing the the challenges that they faced in waiting for God's provision, right? The idea that um, they were leaving Egypt, God took them a long way versus a shorter way intentionally to preserve and protect their faith, uh, didn't want them going towards the Philistines to where they would be uh, potentially impacted by that threat. Um, he has them turn around and basically traps them where there's the desert and the sea and the pursuing army of Egypt. Um, instead of looking to him in trust and assurance, they begin to complain and worry and are, and are fearful. Um, and then we saw God bringing them through that uh, two weeks ago where God did deliver them. I'd love for these sermons to be sermons that we could just file away and say, hey, that's good. We know that, we believe that, but we don't ever have to use that, right? There's times in school where you sit in classes and you wonder like, when am I ever going to need this content, right? And, and sometimes you're just told you may never need it, but you still have to know it for right now. Um, I'd love for this to be the type of content where we could just say, hey, we have to know it, but we won't ever have to use it. But it seems like when we're studying through things and going through things, God gives us direct application where we have to use it, right? Uh, a lot of you know that Lauren and I are in the process of trying to both sell our house and buy a new house. And we've kind of resolved that there's probably going to be a time gap between those two things. And um, that's scary and fearful. And I wish I could tell you as your pastor that, that, that it's not for me, that I can just go back to Exodus and find great comfort and care and assurance that God's going to provide when it doesn't always feel like there is a way for God to provide. Um, but I, I was driving home from school the other day and just praying and crying out to God these, these things, saying, Lord, I need you to, to make a way where there's not a way right now. I need you to make a path where I don't see a path right now. There's been several things here at the end of the school year that have popped up that um, I feel like I'm sitting in the midst of the desert on one side and a, and a deep sea on the other, and there is no option. There is no way, and there is no answer. And praying and asking God for something to happen, for there to be some type of movement, for the sea to start splitting at some point, for there to be some level of dry ground somewhere for me to cross. And so I know in talking with others, there's been situations in your own life where those things have popped up too. And so um, what we saw two weeks ago is that God does open ways. He does create paths. He does do the impossible. And we're going to continue to build off that today as we look at the Red Sea song found in Exodus chapter 15. This is the celebration that ensues after the Israelites see the dead bodies of the Egyptians everywhere on the seashore after they cross on dry land. It says in verse 1, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. 
The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with, the, with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength in your whole, to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the descendants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Our summary sentence for today, God puts us in impossible situations, so we are forced to look to the only one who can possibly make a way. So that when a path is finally created, our initial panic is moved to ongoing praise because of his unrivaled power. God puts us in impossible situations, so we're forced to look to the only one who can possibly make a way. So that when a path is finally created, our initial panic is moved to ongoing praise because of his unrivaled power. For our kids, God wins victories when things seem impossible so that we will sing and praise him for it. We talked about this in relationship to Israel. It's not as easy to necessarily apply it to ourselves. We said that God was putting Israel in an impossible situation so they would have to look to him, so they would have to trust him, so that their panic could be turned to praise, that they could begin to acknowledge him as the one worthy of their worship. But he does the same thing for us too. He puts us in situations that we would deem impossible so that we look to the one who is the only one who can possibly make a way for us. And all of us have that initial panic that set in, right? Like even as your pastor, like panic sets in for me too when when there's impossible situations thrown my way. Now we've talked about how we want to reduce the time it takes from the panic to turn to to trust and praise and, and worship of God who will provide. But Until Jesus comes back, we're always going to struggle with that initial panic that sets in. What's going to happen? Who's in control? What should I do right now? And the answer is always that we can trust him to work good for us. 
That initial panic sets in, but we want to see it move to ongoing praise as we focus on his unrivaled power, that he can do exactly what he wants to do. This song is sung after the Red Sea crossing. It's the first recorded song in scripture for us. Note that what is preserved is the lyrics, right? Like I'd love to be able to text Tyson and say, hey, let's sing this song this morning as an application of what we're going to learn. Well, we could say the lyrics, we could read those together, but we can't sing this song the way they sung it because we don't have the music. We don't have the melody. That part's not preserved for us, right? Like the inspiration of scripture doesn't include the, uh, the, the, the music notes for us. We have no idea what the melody of this song was, which probably is an indicator to us that lyrics are the most important aspects of song choice, right? Like it may not always be our choice of melody or music, but the lyrics are the most important piece of a song, and God preserves this song for us because of what it communicates. What does it communicate to us? Well, it communicates that the character and power of God work both judgment and mercy for his people. Look again at verse 19. This song is proclaiming to us that God's character, who he is, and, and his power, what he does, they work judgment and mercy for his people. Because it says, when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea, right? God brings justice and judgment upon his people's enemies, and he brings mercy and grace upon them because he has chosen them. He has adopted them. He has redeemed them. They are his, and he preserves them. And Israel says, we will sing about this. We will sing about this. The family of Abraham who went into Egypt as a, as a big, large, extended family reunion of 70, they come out as this giant, great people group, right? And they are now recognizing more fully that the God who delivered them is worthy of their praise. Now, before we get into this, we have to remind ourselves how we even got to studying the book of Exodus, right? We were studying Ephesians, and we came to Ephesians 5.19, and what were we told to do? We were told to be spirit-led and to sing songs to one another, right? Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs as a means of encouragement. So Ephesians 5.19 tells us that being spirit-led means we are known for giving thanks rather than bringing complaints to each other. We're far more prone to speak complaints to each other, right? To sing songs of misery and worry and uh, dissatisfaction and discontentment. Like we're great at writing lyrics to those type of songs and singing those to one another. Ephesians tells us to do something totally different. To sing spiritual songs and psalms and hymns to one another. And so after we finished Ephesians, we said, hey, let's go to the book of Psalms and let's, let's study the psalms so that we can sing these to each other. Whether we actually put melody to it or not, let's know the truths of Psalms so that we can speak those things to one another as a means of encouragement. And then when we were in Psalms, what did we find? We found that the foundation for many of the psalmists giving praise was the events in Exodus. And so we said, okay, let's go from Psalms to Exodus. Let's learn about what these people are singing about. And now we're seeing what they're singing about, this great deliverance. I want to pose a question to you, though. Why don't we sing like we ought to sing? Why don't we sing like we ought to sing? We've all found ourselves in situations, and maybe you're the type of person who feels extremely uncomfortable singing in public, singing in the local church corporate setting, 
right? That's not uncommon, right? All of us have been in settings too where it seems like it's not an issue for, for people to sing, right? Like one of the things that I love about uh, going to camp up at Snowbird during the summer and seeing like youth groups come together or even like at our adult conferences that we go to, seeing kind of this uh, unhindered desire to sing loudly and to praise and worship in that setting. But why don't we sing like we ought to sing a lot of times? Well, I kind of narrowed it down to a lot of times it's got to do with personal protection being valued over public proclamation, right? We use excuses like, I'm not a good singer, or I don't really know these songs well enough to sing, or what if I think Tyson's going to do something with the song, and then he doesn't go as fast as I do, and then I'm caught singing, and everybody else knows to wait for this next verse, or, or whatever it may be, right? Like, we kind of we deal in personal protection, right? Like, I don't want to put myself out there and feel silly about my singing ability, right? And so we oftentimes will kind of cower back and say, you know, I'm not, I'm going to wait for others to take the lead on this. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be the one who publicly proclaims maybe what's going on in my heart. I want to kind of protect myself personally. But I think there's a lot of times other real reasons that we don't sing, right? A lot of times it has to do with our lack of awareness. We're, We're not really aware that God is working and moving in our midst and therefore we're not prone to give him thanks, right? Like we're, we're asking the question to ourselves, is God doing anything? Is God really doing anything? So it could be that you come on a Sunday and and your lack of singing is due to a lack of awareness. You don't see God working and moving in your life. You can't put your hands and, and eyes on it. And so you're not prone to worship him vocally through song. Maybe there's a lack of acknowledgement, right? Like maybe you can see that God has done some things in your life, but you're not ready to give him the due honor for it, right? Like maybe you're willing to try to explain it away in a different manner, right? Like, yeah, we were praying about that. We were hoping for that. And and things kind of worked out that way, but maybe they would have done that without us praying, right? Like maybe, maybe God's not really responsible. Um, we, we, we just don't acknowledge him for it, right? Like we're, we're kind of uh, guilty like the, um, the individuals who had leprosy in the New Testament, right? They're crying out to Jesus for healing. Jesus heals them and they completely forget that he's the one that's done the healing and they run away to get cleansed by the, or declared cleansed by the, uh, the priest. But there's no acknowledgement really. Like only one comes back to acknowledge that, hey, we asked you for something. You gave it to us. You deserve honor and, and glory and worship for that. A lack of acknowledgement. Or maybe it's number three, a lack of anticipation. Not just is God doing something or did God do something. It's will God continue to do anything? Maybe you can see God doing things in the past, but you're, you're, you're lacking faith and, and you're doubting whether he's going to do anything in the future. And so it's, it's quenching your, your singing, right? These, these are real reasons I think that we don't sing. There's a lack of awareness, a lack of acknowledgement, maybe a lack of anticipation for what God will do. Our call to sing is not tied to how great our voice is, but how great our God is. We sing on Sundays because of what he did last week for us. Our singing on Sundays is not tied to how great our voice is. It's tied to how great our God is. Songs and singing are a gift from our creator to help us remember, to preserve in our memory what God has done for us. Look what James Montgomery Boyce says about music and singing. He says, music is a gift from God that allows us to express our deepest heart responses to God and his truth in meaningful and memorable ways. It's a case of our hearts joining with our minds to say yes 
to the truths we are embracing. Singing is important, right? Like if we were to whittle down like what does a local church do, you can't leave out the singing part. Like, like there's, there's too many passages in Scripture that would point us to singing to where if we were to gather as a church and to try to study Scripture and apply Scripture and not sing, like questions would be raised pretty quickly. Like how can we do what we're doing without singing? It's a part of what a local church does. Tony Meredith says, songs are portable theology. They're the theology that we take with us as a resource to draw upon to help us remember when things seem difficult. Good songs help us recount and remember God's saving work in history. All right, you get bad news at work, you need songs that point you to Scripture. You need songs to sing on your way home to remind your heart and your mind that he is going to make a way, that he is going to come through, that he is good, and he is God. This passage reminds us that when God does good things, he deserves our praise, and we ought to give it to him. We ought to intentionally give it to him. So let's jump in here. Number one, we sing in awareness that God is working. So let's push back against those three reasons we don't sing. Awareness, acknowledgement, and anticipation. We sing in awareness that God is working. We can become aware that God is working by first remembering what the situation was prior to God's work becoming evident. What was it like before God's work became evident? Well, verse 9 helps us to see that. We're going to jump around throughout this song. It doesn't necessarily flow chronologically, and so it's written very poetically. And so for sermon's sake, it's going to be easier for us to kind of jump around and make some points versus trying to go exactly verse by verse through this like we normally would. Verse 9 says, the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. Like that is the predicament that we left off with before they crossed the Red Sea, where the Israelites are looking up and seeing their circumstances only, right? We talked about looking above your circumstances to see the God who's at work. The passage just says they look up and see their circumstances. They see the, the, the Egyptians coming, right? And they begin to cry out to Moses, how dare you bring us out here? We'd rather be back in Egypt where there are not enough graves there for us to be buried there. Is that why you moved us out here? Right? And so that was the situation prior to God working. And the song highlights that. It calls us to remember what our predicament was. Oftentimes when we sing songs about our salvation, the lyrics of those songs draw attention to the sin that we were saved out of, right? Our state of darkness, our state of hopelessness, because it's remembering who we were before Christ that gives us fuel to sing about his salvation, right? Like, I need to be reminded of the situation before Jesus came into my life. I need to be remembered how lost and dark I was and how he radically saved me from that. As Moses and the people are singing, they highlight what the life or what the situation was before God's work became evident. The path was closed. The enemy was pursuing. The promises that he had made to them were in jeopardy, right? They're holding Joseph's bones. They're carrying them around. And they're thinking, why are we doing this? We're never going to get to the promised land. We're never going to bury his body where he wanted to be buried because we're about to die right here. That was their situation. And then God began to work and move. They had every reason to grumble and complain because every one of those reasons was present for them. And that's exactly what they did, right? They grumbled and complained in hopelessness about their situation. 
But number two, we, re- we recognize what the situation has now become in light of God's work. We sing when we see where we were and where we've come, right? Like, um, I would encourage you, like, one of the, the ways that you can come in prepared and ready to sing in an obedient way on a Sunday morning is to come with a mindset where you have reflected back on this past week, thought about, like, what was my week like and where would it have ended up without God? And how can I look back and see him working and moving over the course of this week? Because when we spend some time thinking about that, man, our hearts are prone to worship and to praise him. Verse 1 reminds us of where they are now. It says, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The section closes with very similar language where Miriam is singing the same thing, right? Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The very things that had created the fear, they're gone now. The horse and the rider, the instrument and the agent, like all their source of fears God has removed. It's a climactic, memorable rescue. The results of it leading them to spontaneous praise. Look what verse 2 says. And this is where I think the singing really amplifies in our life when we begin to see the personal relationship that we enjoy with this God, right? Look what verse 2 says. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. I love the implication of that verse because remember, this Yahweh, this God that they've been hearing about from Moses, this is Abraham's God, this is Isaac's God, this is Jacob's God, this is Joseph's God. But they haven't seen a whole lot of God during these 400 years of slavery, right? They've been crying out to him and they've been asking for deliverance and there hasn't been any. Now we talked early on in Exodus, God was always working and moving behind the scenes. He was always setting them up for deliverance. But he wasn't updating them on that, right? As far as they know, their prayers are going unanswered, right? It's been several days for me since a situation occurred at Trinity, and I'm still standing there wondering, Red Sea or desert, where's the provision going to come from, right? Like, like, it ain't happening fast for me. And so as I sit there and wonder, like, hey, where, where, where's it going to come from? Where's it going to happen? Like, I'm thinking, well, the Israelites had to wait 400 years, Before they ever get in that trap situation, they're caged, right? And they can't get out. And now that they've been delivered, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, this God is my God now, and I will praise him. There's a personal relationship that takes place here that's being acknowledged. When this God becomes your God, praise becomes the natural response for being aware of and now experiencing his grace. Right? Like we may come here and we may have a hard time singing because maybe we are feeling like we're being asked to sing about that God. And he's not our God. Like he hasn't become your personal God. Like you haven't submitted your life to him. Or or maybe you're not actively submitting to him right now, even though you've you've made that profession of faith. Maybe you're in a season of life where you're not you're not submitting to him like you should be. The, the, the singers here say, hey, we're going to sing because it's not just a God that we're singing about. It's our God, this my God that I'm going to praise. 
And that pattern continues into Revelation chapter 5, right? You've got uh, in that throne room, it's full of saints and they're singing praises. They're praising the slain, risen lamb because they know without the slain, risen lamb, there is no hope for them to be there. They should be in a different location, right? So you, you see this throne room in heaven and there's saints that are praising God and they're crying out to the lamb who is worthy. He's worthy because he was slain. But he's worthy because he's there to be talked about. He's not still slain. He's not dead. He's alive and well. When we know where we've been and where we've come from and where we are now, it leads to spontaneous praise like we see here in this passage. If we're aware that God is working and we're aware that he's working for us because he's our God, we can't help but praise him. We can't help but sing to him. Number two, we sing in acknowledgement it is God working. We sing in acknowledgement, it is God working. An awareness that God is working, and then an acknowledgement that it is God working, and not some other means, not some other being, not some other circumstance that's allowed things to spin our way. Our songs are meant to be sung about God and to God as a way of both acknowledging Him to creation and praising Him as the Creator. You'll notice through this song At times, here at the beginning, the song is sung about God. Then the song kind of shifts and it's being sung to God, right? So we we see that on Sundays when we sing the songs that Tyson selects. At times we sing about God, right? We proclaim who God is to each other through our voices, through the lyrics, because we need to be reminded of that. But then there's other times where we sing songs that are directed to God, because he deserves our worthy worship, right? Like he is worthy. And so we, we should give that to him. And we should acknowledge that to him. And it should be a, a, a relationship piece where we're, we're singing to him, not just about him to others, but to him. And you have both coupled here in this song. At times they're singing about God so that they, as a people, know better who he is as they reflect upon these events. But also singing to God as a way of worship, worshiping him for what he's done. They sing about him in verses 1 through 5 in verse 18. They sing to him in verses 6 through 17. They sing about who he is. They sing about what he has done. So as we try to fight against our tendency to not want to sing, we're talking about being aware that God's working and then acknowledging that he is working. We start by giving tribute to the character of God. It's God who's working, and we can see that he's working because we can look and reflect upon his character. Look at the character we see in verse 2. He's my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. His faithfulness. Moses and the people reference the fact that he's their father's God, right? Like he's the God they've heard about. His faithfulness in the past gives him credibility, and now he's become their God. The past God is the now God for them, right? Like they, they, they say, hey, my father's God has now become real to me today, but there's this faithful strand that's highlighted. Because he was faithful to my father, I now have embraced his faithfulness to me. They're singing about his faithfulness. They're singing about his eternality. His eternality. The name of God is Yahweh, the I am. Verse 3, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. 
right? He rem- remember, he, he reveals himself to Moses, not just as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but as the I am. It's a passage that Jesus hangs on to in the New Testament when he says, before, a- before Moses was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am, right? He's the eternal one. He's the one that's always ruling and reigning. They're singing about his eternality. Verse 11, they're singing about his incomprehensiveness, that we can't even grasp how great he is and what he's capable of doing. Verse 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? The psalmist attaches a future song to this idea in Psalm 86, verse 8. Psalm chapter 86, verse 8 says, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great, and you do wondrous things. You alone are God. We can't even comprehend how great he is as we attempt to sing about him. Verse 12 highlights his power. The power that he possesses, the power that he has demonstrated in the events surrounding this song. Verse 12, you stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. We see his power. We see his mercy in verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. Right? The, the, the waves didn't crash down on everybody, just on the enemy. God's people were saved. They were led through that sea. We see his wisdom in verse 14. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Right? His wisdom, because he didn't take them to Philistia, right? He didn't take them to the Philistines. He worked a great victory so that now when they do get to the Philistines, it's the Philistines who are scared, not the Israelites. Remember, he says, I'm not going to take you to the Philistines. You'll be too scared of them. And they don't have a reason to be scared of you just yet. But now he's flipped the script. Now it's the Philistines that will be fearful. We see God's wisdom here. We see God's wisdom. The themes of this song becomes a favorite in heaven as well. Revelation chapter 15. So they're singing in Revelation 5, but they're also singing in Revelation chapter 15. And they're singing a familiar song. Look what it says in verse 3. We'll start in verse 1 to set the, the context. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are in the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. Don't miss the imagery here. That Red Sea was like a sea of glass too after it crushed the Egyptians. It had been a raging sea. It had been a threatening sea. And then God split that sea and then it crashed down on the Egyptians. And fast forward to the book of Revelation, you have a similar scene where God's people have conquered the beast and its image. They've been rescued from the, the, the state and its power. They're standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God. And what do they do? It says, verse 3, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. We sing to acknowledge that it is God who is working. We give tribute to the character of God as we sing. And then number two, we give tribute to the acts of God 
as we sing as well. It's his character that points us to the faithfulness in his acts and what he does for us. Notice how Israel makes no effort to downplay the acts of God, which would have been very tempting potentially, right? Because uh, as a know-it-all, they were, were complaining about how there was no hope, right? And all of a sudden, hope springs forth and they're delivered, like kind of out of nowhere, And now God is coming through and delivering them. And it probably would have been tempting to try to explain this away so that you still felt like you were kind of right. You know, like, hey, let's downplay this a little bit because it was pretty hopeless. Um, I don't want to admit that I was wrong about this. But Israel doesn't do that here, right? there's There's no downplaying of it. It shows how wrong they really were for complaining, this song is basically them, them crying out in song, we thought you couldn't and you did. We thought you wouldn't and you did. And that's how we should come ready to sing every Sunday, right? As we look back on our week, to be able to say, you did, you did. Because there will probably always be moments where we thought, maybe you won't. And yet you did. They're singing about this. Verses four through eight. We've read it already a few times here. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea. His chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I'll pursue. But what happened in verse 10? You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Notice how this song is pointing out specifically the acts of God and what he's done. With their enemies drowned and their freedom secure, the people of Israel, Israel burst into song and praised the Lord. We too can have that if we'll acknowledge as we look back on our week and we ponder, what has God done, right? And we're willing to give him the tribute that he deserves for what he did. And we can point out detail after detail of what we see him doing. It leads us to praise him for that. Seeing an awareness that God's working, seeing an acknowledgement that it is God working and not some other force. And then number three, we sing in anticipation that God will continue working. A lot of our songs do this as well, right? Like we're not just singing about who God is and, and what he has done and what he's currently doing, but what he will do. We sing about what he will do, what God has done. It reveals who he is, but then it also tells us what he's going to do in the future, right? As we sing songs about what he's done in the past, it helps us to know the character of God today in the present, and it also gives us fuel to praise him for what he's going to do in the future as well. Number one, we can trust in the motivation for God's work. How do we sing when we don't feel like singing? How do we sing when maybe we, we lack uh, any awareness of what he's doing currently? Well, even if you are having trouble seeing how God is working right now in your life, hopefully you're still trusting that he will work in the future. If you can't point to where he's doing it right now, we have so many promises about what he will do in the future. And we sing about those things too. And we can motivate ourselves to sing because we can see what he is motivated by for how he works. Verse 13, you have led in your steadfast love 
the people whom you have redeemed. That word for steadfast love, we've, we've referenced it before. It's the covenant word for how God feels about Israel. It's not just any love. It's a covenant, fully devoted, never going to leave you love that he has for them. And the song says you lead us by that. Your steadfast commitment, your steadfast, undying love for us, that is what is leading us because you've redeemed us. That love binds himself to us. Micah chapter 7. Verse 18. You know, we can, we can sing songs about who's a God like you that can part the Red Sea. Who's a God like you that can save somebody overnight in a lion's den. We can sing about a God who can save people in a fiery furnace. We can sing about all of these great acts of power. But Micah seven eighteen reminds us that even if we don't feel like God is saving us from a lion's den, or we don't feel like he's splitting a Red Sea for us right now, what we can sing about is what makes him absolutely, preciously unique to us. Look what verse 18 says. Who is a God like you? Not who is a God like you that parts Red Seas or saves people from lions. Who is a God like you pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob, steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. There's times where you don't feel like he's working and moving, and you have to be reminded that the God of our fathers is still our God today. He's my God. And even though I don't see the dry path just yet, I can trust that he's still the God who is uniquely pardoning me from my iniquity, who's forgiven me from my sin. And that's the greatest thing he could do. That is greater than Red Seas. It's greater than lion's dens, right? Is the fact that he would look at me and say, you deserve hell, you deserve wrath, you deserve punishment, but I sent my son Jesus for you instead. I'm taking all your sins, all of your ugliness, all of your dirtiness, I'm throwing it into the sea. Just like I buried the Egyptians, I'm burying it. Which means we may feel, we may be like the Israelites who die in slavery and never see that in this life. It doesn't mean he stopped being faithful. Because where we need him to be the most faithful is right here. Right here is where his faithfulness is seen in the greatest ways that he forgives us of our sins. And that when we do die and we're welcomed into eternity with him, we will undoubtedly sing at that time. Because there will be no confusion about how he's been working. And we will be fully aware, just like all those other saints standing around the throne, singing and praising him for who he is. His steadfast love is motivation for his work. But verse 3 also says he is a fighting God. He is a man of war. Some translations say the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. He's a fighting God. He promises to us that he will always fight for and win his glory and our good. Remember back in chapter 14, verse 14, what did he tell them? What was his assurance to them when they were fearful? 
Moses says, hey, the Lord has said he will fight for you and you only have to be silent. He gives us this story today so that we know that he's still fighting for us. Look what happens in Deuteronomy. After this, Moses reminds the people that this event is supposed to sustain them when they doubt God in the future and they wonder what's going to happen. Look what it says in verse 30. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. He's going he's gonna to fight for us. He's going to carry us. He's that committed to us, and we can trust him in that. We can trust that his motivation to work and to move and to do is a motivation to bring his glory and our good into being. These demonstrations of God's care in history, they give us confidence today that he is still for us no matter what's happening today, no matter how we're feeling about today. These things remind us that he's still fighting for us. We trust in that motivation. Number two, we trust in the end goal for God's work as well. This song comes to an end with an emphasis on what God is going to do. He hasn't done this yet, but this is what God is going to do, and they're singing about it. Verse 17, you will bring them his people. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. We can sing today because God has plans for us, and he's committed to bringing his people into a state of rest where they do worship him freely forever. That's the end goal. He gets us there. He who starts the good work finishes the good work. He who calls you is faithful. He will also do it for you because he's faithful. 14 through 16 reminds us of how he does that. What's it say? The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. Verse 17 tells us where we're going to go. Verses 14 through 16 remind us he is committed to paving every path necessary to make it happen. He says, I'm going to stop the enemies. They're going to be as still as stone. They can't do anything I don't want them to do until you pass by. Why? Because I got a place I'm taking you. And I'm going to get you there. And I'm going to get you there safely in the end. He's committed to paving every way possible. And we sing about this. We sing about these future events. We sing about them out of faith. We anticipate what God's going to do. What's he going to do? He's going to make our enemies fear. He's going to give us safe passage. And he's going to make sure we arrive home. We can trust him with that. And we ought to sing about that. We ought to come ready, armed and ready every week to sing about it. Because we're commanded to. And if we're really thinking about these things, we can't help but sing about them. It is to be a natural response. Look what Moses says. Look what the people say. Verse 1, I will sing to the Lord. I will do it. I will be obedient, and I will sing to the Lord. Three points of application. Number one, Whenever God does something great, he deserves to be praised. So acknowledge him well 
lest you forget. Acknowledge him well, lest you forget. Psalm 106, verse 9. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. That's where we want the psalm to end. And we'd like for the story of Israel's exodus to end right here too. But it doesn't end. In a couple of weeks, we're going to see in verse 22 what happens. Verse 13 of Psalm 106 tells us, They soon forgot his works, and they did not wait for his counsel. They had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert, and he gave them what they asked but sent a wasting disease among them. And they forgot. They quit giving him praise. He has to draw their attention back to him because they forgot. And we don't want to be that. We, we want to remember God. We want to remember what he's doing. We want to give him the praise that he deserves. We want to sing to him and acknowledge him well so that we don't forget. Number two, turn your sighing to singing. Turn your grumbling and your complaining and your groaning to singing by increasing the theology of your songs to help mature your feelings when all seems lost. And we can sing to our souls when our souls don't feel like singing. We can take good, theologically rich songs and listen to them and put our ears underneath that so that we can have our feelings hopefully mature and grow so that our hearts can get aligned with what we're listening to. Turn your sign to singing. Increase the theology of your songs to mature those feelings when all seems lost. Number three, oftentimes churches are known for their music, but may it be our goal that our church is known for its singing. There's there's so many churches around here, and people can pick and choose the type of church based on what kind of whets their appetite and then meets their preference checklist about the singing and the music. You can go from this church to that church, and you can say, you know what, we like this church better because we like the music better there. Some people come to our church, they like our music. Some people come to our church, don't like our music and don't stay because of it. Some people come, don't really prefer it, but they tolerate it and they stay. I don't ever want our church to be known for its music, right? I want our church to be known for the ways that we sing to our music because that's a sign of a healthy church. A sign of a healthy church is when rich theological songs are being chosen which they are. And we are blessed with Tyson and our worship team. They pick rich theological songs for us to sing every week. They set the table for us to come and eat, right? Sign of a healthy church is when rich theological songs are being chosen, and then people are boldly and faithfully singing them. Because what that means is that this God is their God, and they've embraced him, and they see him working and moving in their life. Right? So visitors ought to come in here and say, whoa, look at this place. I don't know if I like this music, but these people like it because they are singing. right? And even if they don't like the music, they like the God that they're singing about with this music that they don't like. right? Like, May it be that we're known for our singing. And I want people to visit our church and to say, hey, this God is real to this people because they are singing boldly about him. And they're not the greatest singers. Like I can hear them, and, and somehow they're, they're not trying to protect themselves because they're willing to publicly proclaim him, even though they're not great singers. Man, let us become the type of people that are willing to sing and to praise him because of who he is. He deserves it. 
He does great things, and we deserve to give him his worship because he does great things. We're going to have an opportunity to sing today. Direct application. Let us sing well because he is a faithful God. And even if you don't feel like he has paved that road yet for you through the Red Sea, and it's still a glassy sea and there is no dry ground yet, it's coming. It is coming because he has promised to take you there. And you just got to wait. And you can sing in anticipation until he does split it. You can sing about that future victory that he has promised. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We thank you. And Lord, we want to sing to you. Just as Moses and the Israelites did in response to what took place thousands of years ago at that seashore. Lord, they went from a moment's notice of grumbling and complaining and doubting you to all of a sudden being overwhelmed by your salvation. Lord, maybe today we haven't been saved from a a pursuing Egyptian army this past week. But Lord, that's not what ultimately makes you great. What makes you great is that you sent your son as the slain lamb who is risen and alive today, making it possible for you to pardon our iniquity. We can have all of our sins forgiven. What a glorious promise that is, that you're going to bury our sins in the sea and never bring them back up and never remind us of them and never hold us accountable to them. Like you're, you're forgiving us of it. And not because we did anything good this week, but because your son did everything perfect 2,000 years ago when he lived here on this earth as a man. God, help our hearts to be drawn to the fact that we ought to sing. We ought to sing for that truth. You are a good God. Lord, help us to sing about that goodness today as we leave. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.